have a seat. It is great to see you all here this morning. Give me just a second while I get situated. And uh, while I get situated, I'm going to make uh, customary small talk. Man, that weather. Wow. I hope you guys didn't get sprinkled on too bad. It was, it was pouring when we got here this morning, but thankfully it's cleared up quite a bit. Um, but definitely uh, with how much it's been raining this week, I hope you all were okay with the humidity this weekend and I hope you all came out relatively unscathed. Um, but it's so good to see you all here this morning. It's great to have you with us here at Midtown. Um, for those of you who I have not had the pleasure of meeting, uh, my name is Corbin White and I am one of the associate pastors. Thanks, Susie. <laughs> I have you guys in the script. You're supposed to come up later. No, no, no. Um, My name is Corbin White. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Midtown Church. Um, And if you can believe it, I can barely believe it. Uh, It's, I'm actually approaching uh, my one year anniversary here at Midtown Church. I'm a little bit over like a month and a half away, which is crazy to think about. Um, It kind of snuck up on me a little bit, but the more I've been reflecting on it, uh, the one saying comes to mind, um, which is time flies when you're having fun especially with such beautiful people as yourselves. So it's been, it's been an amazing year, and I, I can't wait for more years to come. Uh, and speaking of having fun, haven't we been having some fun exploring the 12 minor prophets these past few months? Like, wow, the hype is real. Um, to be honest, especially even after the scripture this morning, uh, fun may not be the first word that comes to your mind to describe the reading of the minor prophets. Uh, these books are oftentimes some of the toughest to understand and the toughest to read. Um, but I can tell you personally that it's been amazing week after week to watch every speaker that's been a part of this series um, come up and approach this pulpit every week to help our community of Jesus followers understand these ancient texts and how they still have so much to say here in our 21st century world. We are honored and so grateful Uh, For all of you who have spoken and for all of you who have listened to us these past few months, it wouldn't have been the same without you. And there have been many things happening these past few months. Uh, It's been a busy summer. Some of us have been traveling uh, throughout the U.S. or even the world. Uh, Some of us have gotten married, including the wooer over here, which is my uh, younger sister, Suzanne. Uh, She is here with her husband, Adam, my new brother-in-law, and they just got married about, uh, it's about four weeks ago now. I'm not trying to jump the, three, three, feels like four, I don't know, no. So So please, both of you, keep the heckling to a minimum, okay? I got to stay focused here. No, I'm joking. Love you guys. Um, Some of us, uh, I've been talking to a few of you, have already made your way back into the schools, school buildings, school systems, which is is kind of a bummer. I know the summer goes by too quickly. Or maybe that you're preparing your children to do the same. There's a lot going on these past few months. But I would argue none of it holds a candle to the most spectacular cultural phenomenon that we have, the, have had the pleasure of witnessing this summer. Of course, I'm referring to Barbenheimer. <laughs> Just a show of hands this morning, how many of you have seen the Barbie movie? Hands, hands, don't be ashamed, folks. Okay, we got a, got a few, got a few. Okay, we need to get these numbers up, folks. Uh, how many of you have seen Oppenheimer? I'm in this crew, okay, okay, okay. I, I'm seeing a little. How many have seen both movies? How many have seen both? Okay, okay. How many of you saw both of them on the same night? Like you did the full experience. Okay, some true legends. 
are among us this morning. Well done, everybody. Thank you, thank you for sharing. Again, true legends among us this morning, folks. Uh, so again, as a, as a film nerd myself, I, I could not have had at least one Barbenheimer reference uh, the next time I got here in the pulpit and was able to speak to you guys. It was just, it was inevitable. Um, and I, I mean, it took over things. There were memes all over social media. The news covered it, our budgets. We had to set it aside because we knew we had to have the full Barbenheimer experience. Um, and I had the pleasure of seeing Oppenheimer in IMAX on opening night, which was a crazy experience, to say the least. Um, for those who've watched it, you know, we'll, we'll talk afterwards. But my, my opinion, the film is beautiful. But it's also filled with things that make you reflect upon humanity, what we're capable of doing. And you can find my full review on Letterboxd if you'd like to hear all my thoughts. No, I'm joking. <laughs> But as, I was, um, but as I was preparing for this sermon, getting things ready, and, and thinking about this, I was reminded of a moment in the theater after watching Oppenheimer. Uh, for those of you who've seen the movie, you know that these last few moments are astonishing, but leave the viewer with such a tangible feeling of dread. As we know, we live in a world filled with nuclear power and men who can use it. The film does not portray this knowledge as something comforting. And yet, at the end of this biographical epic, when the screen had just gone black in my showing and the title had appeared once again before the credits started to roll, I watched as the IMAX theater I was sitting in quickly started to empty out. And I was struck by this. And I'm going to sound really snobby here, which I fully acknowledge but I've also come to terms with it. My reaction was literally like, where is everybody going? Why are you leaving so quickly? Like, don't you want to sit and stay with what you've just experienced? Like, this movie is why we go to the theaters, folks. What is the rush to get out of here? Again, I know I sound really elitist, and after I put my, my top hat and film monocle away, I started digesting the film with a friend that I had gone to see it with and we had a great conversation. And yet, that ma mass exodus of people from the theater stuck with me. And I get it, it was 12 in the morning by the time it was finished. <laughs> that could have had something to do with it. Maybe they had found a poor babysitter so you know the couple could go out to movie night and they simply wanted to relieve them. Maybe their bladders were seconds away from exploding. There's a large list of reasons that could have made everybody quickly exit the dark theater after this viewing of Oppenheimer. But a few weeks later, I was talking to a mentor of mine named Daniel Guy about this very observation because he had seen the film as well. And Daniel masterfully brought something to my attention that I had not thought about. Maybe the reason most of the crowd wanted to leave was because they did not want to sit with the uncomfortable feeling that the film had left. Maybe the reason they fled to their cars was not to beat traffic, but maybe just to help stuff down some of the feelings of existential dread that the film had just given them. They didn't want to have to stare into the void and listen to what it had to say any longer than they had to to justify their ticket purchase. Now again, this is all conjecture. I have no way of knowing where these people went. 
However, as we are looking at the last book in the Minor Prophets, which name is Malachi, I could not help but think of these feelings. The book of the Twelve, these Minor Prophets and all their messages have been quite a journey, a journey that I think is very well summed up in Malachi chapter 4 that we read this morning. In a way, these books have brought us back to the void again and again and again. They've showed us Israel's history. It has reminded us of the injustices that even God's people are capable of committing. It has given us ways upon ways to look at the state of our world and how it's not supposed to be this way, that there is an alternative. The prophets have called not only the people of God back then, but us, the people of God now, back to covenant faithfulness. And it has reminded us of what covenant relationship should look like. And that's not always a comfortable thing. It's not always comfortable to restore a fragmented relationship. So maybe, just maybe, when we find ourselves in this place where we are about to bid adieu to the minor prophets and their messages, we might be happy, we might be even thankful to say goodbye to them for just a little while. But this is exactly why I think Malachi is the perfect way to close this series out. As we explore this book, we'll be able to see that it concludes the Old Testament canon of Scripture with such a real and tangible message of hope and that Jesus' fingerprints are all over the content. So, let's dive into Malachi. It's time for my favorite question. Who wrote the book of Malachi? Any questions? Any answers? It's a great answer, Alex. And it's true. Malachi was the one who wrote the book of Malachi. Uh, But funny enough, in Hebrew, the word Malachi simply means my messenger. Um, So this leads some scholars to think that Malachi was an actual prophet. Somebody actually named Malachi, which, I mean, if you're going to be a prophet, my messenger is a pretty great name. Let's be honest. Um, Or it sometimes leads scholars to believe that maybe this was one of the other minor prophets writing another letter simply titled, From My Messenger, and they left it vague. Either way, it's just a little fun fact. It doesn't really impact a lot about what we're going to be discussing. But still, a little bit of Hebrew lesson today. Maybe Maybe you can think of that next time you read the book of Malachi. And Malachi is writing to the people of God after the exilic period where Israel's people were displaced by the Babylonian Empire and were taken from the Holy Land forcibly. This was one of the consequences of the covenantal relationship that Israel had fragmented with their actions. But like Amanda talked about last week, she's in the back, so I don't know if she can hear me. (laughs) Like Amanda talked about last week, they were back. They were back in the Holy Land. They were rebuilding the temple. Good stuff was happening. They were starting to rebuild after such a time away. And the consequences of this would be amazing. This would literally be the holy land that Jesus himself would walk in. This temple that they, would build, they were building would be where God made flesh would dwell. He would preach on the steps. He would enter its courtyards. Even the veil that they would hang would be the one that he tore, showing the people of God that his presence was not something that could be limited. And it is Jesus himself 
that Malachi speaks of in these final verses when he says this. Look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This Elijah language is very important here and is actually referenced by Jesus quite a bit in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus' disciples try to answer the not loaded question at all, who is Jesus Christ? I'm sure some of you could answer that question very well. And I know it's a simple question. And they reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Boom, it's right there, Elijah. Malachi's language is being directly referenced in how the people of Jesus' day think about him. They just did not have the clearest picture of the meaning just yet. You see, in the Jewish understanding, there was something called the Elijah tradition. One of the themes of this tradition came from how Elijah made his epic exit from the earth. You see, Elijah was carried into the heavens by a chariot of fire. It's kind of a pretty metal way to go, in my opinion. Hardcore. But because Elijah never died, because he ascended into heaven in this chariot, um, many Jewish scholars in the time of Malachi believed that Elijah would actually return to earth when God was going to start turning things around, when the day of the Lord was about to begin. So it makes a lot of sense in this Jewish understanding of why people would say, Jesus is obviously Elijah, because he was turning things around. He was making things new. He was saying that the day of the Lord was upon them. And the Jewish people saw this and made the connection instantly. Spoiler alert, Jesus was not Elijah. <laughs> he definitely came from the same prophetic line as Elijah and had a similar role in bringing the people of God back to God, but they were different people. And we can see this through something called the transfiguration in the New Testament. It's literally the chapter after uh, this, uh, the chapter where they ask Jesus, who is he? Matthew 17 records this event. Um, and it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during that conversation. I mean, just like, was it a catch-up chat? Was Jesus just like, hey, how's my dad doing? I know we talk on the daily, but I just want to check in. But this event is so important in the New Testament, for us as the church, and especially for Malachi chapter 4. It's so important, in fact, that the ancient church calendar actually literally devotes an entire Sunday to remembering this event. It's called Transfiguration Sunday. It's where we remember and where we reflect on this event. It would have been great if today was that Sunday, but our coordination wasn't there. Next time, though, I promise. And it's important because why these, uh, it's, it's important because Jesus is the fulfillment of both of these traditions that these two figures represent. 
We've talked a little bit already about Elijah's tradition. Jesus is the perfect prophet who will fulfill all of what the prophets spoke about. When they were looking to the future, they were talking about Jesus. They may have just not known it yet. The day of the Lord that the prophets kept referring to, Jesus. The king from the line of David, Jesus. The Messiah, Jesus. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and then there's Moses, the giver of the law upon this mountain as well. And what does Jesus say about the law? Matthew 5, 17 says this, Do not think that I have come to do away with or undo the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. See why Malachi 4 is so important for the New Testament? See why Jesus is literally all over it? Malachi 4 is where these two themes collide when it says, Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes, the ordinances. I have commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. God is asking Israel to remember, to stick with the very things his son is going to bring to fruition. And this is why I love Malachi chapter 4. It's because we get to see the end of Israel's story, its history, and all of of the things that its people have been through. And this is the perfect way to end it. It's the perfect period at the end of this great epic. When we read this, Malachi chapter 4 that we just read this morning, it is the conclusion of the entirety of the Old Testament. 39 books, roughly 75% of the Bible, ends with a few verses, seven to be exact. Just a short chapter to sum up everything that has happened before and tee up everything that is going to happen afterwards. And if you have a paper Bible, like I might have in front of me, literally, the next page is the New Testament. Like, there's, there's no hesitation. It's almost like God had a plan. The hope for God's people is found in these final instructions. Because God is again reminding them that he will continue to remember his covenantal commitment. Everything has been working towards Jesus. The king of kings, the prophet of prophets, the last high priest the people will ever need. Jesus is, in a real way, the fulfillment of Israel's entire history. But between these two pages, there is a bit more history. Something we Bible nerds like to call the intertestamental period which lasted about 400 years. It's the time between the Old and New Testament. So Malachi, in a real sense, is kind of a bit of a cliffhanger. And during this intertestamental period, we see a lot of things develop that would influence the world that Jesus would inhabit. We see something called the diaspora which is the spreading of Jews away from Jerusalem and around the Mediterranean Sea because some of them were just legitimately exploring, but because a lot of them were disappointed with the state of Jerusalem. Um, Alicia talked about this a little bit. When they came back to the city, a lot of uh, these 
Israelites had been born in Babylon. They got to hear tales of how cool this city was. It's like, this is the cool, this is Disney World. Like, you guys, we got to get back to Disney World. It's just the coolest thing. But then they get back, and it's rubble. The temple is destroyed. All this grandeur that they've heard about, it's just gone. And some of them are legitimately disheartened. So they say, all right. I'm taking my toys and I'm going elsewhere to play. So they spread all out across the Mediterranean along the coast. And so this led to a lot of things. It led to the creation of synagogues. Jesus spends a good amount of time in, his syn- in synagogues in different cities throughout the New Testament. But they were created because the people of Israel needed a worship space. Because they weren't in, gl- uh, in close geographical proximity to the temple. When the Jewish people went out and around the Mediterranean, they needed a place to worship, a place to gather, and synagogues were the answer. It's actually probably most likely the reason that we meet in a church on Sunday mornings. It was kind of the proto-church. When, you know, a lot of Jewish, uh, Jewish Christians uh, in the book of Acts, they were looking at how does the church gather? How do we do this thing called church? And they were like, you know, the synagogue worked actually pretty well. Maybe we should just go with that. Let's keep what works. So it's one of the reasons we still meet uh, together on Sundays. The Old Testament was translated into Greek in something called the Septuagint uh, because Alexander the Great had come in and conquered a lot of area until there was, as he said, no more to conquer. Uh, And Israel was included in that, and he instituted something called the Greek rule, which promoted Greek culture, Greek language uh, in his conquered territories, and this included Israel. Uh, And then eventually, after the Greeks, the Romans came in, and they were like, nope, mine, and uh, they took the Holy Land again, and that's who owned it when Jesus came along. But there were also some people that arose during this 400-year period that claimed, that people claimed to be the Messiah that the Old Testament was talking about. These were people like Judas, the hammer, Maccabees. I don't know if I've ever heard a more epic name than that. Um, and he actually led a revolt that recaptured Jerusalem before they overthrew him. Many Jews thought that he was the Messiah that the prophets talked about because Uh, He gave them everything that they were looking for. He recaptured the city of Jerusalem. He was instituting the monarchy again. He was bringing about all these uh, customs from the law. And people were like, finally. Finally, we got somebody who means business. But then he died. And things didn't continue to improve. And this is why I bring up the intertestamental period is because with such a hope-soaked message that we, le- that we find in Malachi, the people of Israel grew tired of waiting. They looked for people who could bring about the day of the Lord on their timetable and on their schedule. They grew uncomfortable with having to look into the void to see the world in its fallen state, and they yearned for a rescue. But instead of waiting on the Lord's timing... They tried to force it themselves. For us, like the Israelites, we find ourselves in a similar situation as the church. The already, but not yet, as we love to call it. Jesus, the fulfillment, has come. And now we hopefully wait for his return. The church is scattered throughout the world, just like the diaspora. Peter even refers to the church as such in his first letter when he writes, to those who are elect 
exiles, of the dispersion, of the diaspora. We have been scattered, and we sit in our synagogues, and now we wait. But just like that packed theater after a late-night showing of Oppenheimer, we can grow restless. We can yearn for distractions, ways to escape the way the world looks. Many of us have a box in our pockets that can literally do just that, that can transport us away from the present whenever we wish. We can look at the news cycles covering the disasters of the world or the hypocrisy of the church, and the hope that has been offered, offered to us can grow dimmer and dimmer. Sometimes it will even lead us to call someone else Lord. Someone who we feel can bring about the reality that we wish to see now instead of waiting for God's timing. And this is why all us exiles of the diaspora, it is why since we have walked with the 12 minor prophets, this is why we need Malachi. We need reminders. We need to be brought back into the present moment, ready for the work of God's kingdom. Work that doesn't need to be ignored, but work that needs ready hands. As Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but sometimes the workers are few. Worship team, if you would like to go ahead and join me up on the stage. We're going to talk a little bit about some spiritual practices that can help us latch on and remember this hope. Remember the message of Malachi. This first one is simply called direction. No, it's not a movie pun. I promise that this was here before I thought of the Oppenheimer reference. Direction is something that helps us remember not only what we are called to do as believers, but it also helps us center ourselves on the voice of God rather than the voice of others. Hope for Israel in the intertestamental period looked at one time like Judas Maccabees. He gave the people what they wanted. He gave them victory. He gave them a sense of purpose. He gave them Jerusalem back. And yet, at the end of the day, he did not look anything like the true Messiah. He did not look like Jesus. When it comes to direction, a great way to enter into it, to ask God to reorder our thoughts and desires, is something that we have been doing as a community quite a bit over these past few months. It's adopting that ancient posture. And simply praying, come Holy Spirit. This helps invite God back into the throne of our hearts. And there we yield to him and tell him he is free to reorder our disordered desires. There he helps us remember to do not what is pragmatic, but what, ha what Jesus has shown through his passion and taught us. It helps us remember that leaders can and are used by God, but we do not follow a leader. We follow our risen Lord. People will rise and fall, but our God will stand forever. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will reign just as they have in the beginning, are now, and will reign forever. They've been doing it for a long time, and we will trust them to continue
So the first is direction. Second, we must be people who practice celebration. Celebration, expressions of joy in the midst of good or bad circumstances are the very essence of the hope we look forward to. For when our Lord does return, the banquet feasts and the new kingdom will be filled with the celebration of people singing in one voice of the good works of our God. It is through celebration that the light that is the hope that can penetrate the darkest areas of our world, mind, and hearts is truly given its freedom. And it is something that we do every Sunday at the end of our musical worship in an ancient prayer known as the doxology. So before we leave this place, and encounter the void that can leave our souls feeling dry and parched. Let us stand together and sing this doxology prayer once more. And as we do, let us think of the multitudes of believers that have sung it before us throughout the history of the church. That's Big C Church, by the way. Just like us, these believers were in their diaspora, spread across the world in small Jesus-following communities. And they gathered, and like us, they were waiting. Like us, they prayed, how long, O Lord, before you return and make all things right? And like us, they embraced the ancient tension of the Christian faith where we in one voice can ask the Lord how long and then follow that question with the declarations of God's goodness. So now I'm going to give it over to Christina because she's better at these things than I am. And let us join in this ancient chorus this morning of celebration and sing praise to God. to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.